Thank you so much for being here. We're super excited to be doing this at the Nat Geo Further Base Camp today, and we're excited to be at South by Southwest. Yeah, and I talk really loudly. I'm going to use my mom voice in about two seconds, so shut the fuck up. Um, all right, we're here with Too Embarrassed to Ask. I'm Kara Swisher, Executive Editor of Rico. And I'm Lauren Good, Senior Tech Editor at The Verge. And you're listening to Too Embarrassed to Ask, where we answer all of your embarrassing tech questions. Because there are no embarrassing tech questions, as we say every week on our podcast. It could be about smartphones or self-driving cars or whether Kara Swisher really takes phone calls from sources at 2 o'clock in the morning, which I can tell you because I'm staying with her in a hotel room this week. She does. She's up all night. She's a sparkly vampire. Anyway, so send us your questions. We really do read them all. Find us on Twitter or tweet them to at Recode or to myself or to Lauren with the hashtag too embarrassed. Yes. And so normally uh, during our weekly podcast, we take questions from the interwebs. You're all here today and we're going to be taking questions later on during this podcast. So stick around. We're going to give you the opportunity to ask Mary Lou questions. Yes, and we have an email address too, too embarrassed at recode. Reminder for those who cannot spell, embarrassed has two R's and two S's. And we're on iTunes and Google Play and SoundCloud and all the all the usual suspects. So find us there. All right. So we're very excited to welcome Mary Lou Jepson to our live edition of Too Embarrassed to Ask at South by Southwest. Welcome, Mary Lou. It's great to be here. So um, let's start with you and your background. Now, I met you a long, long time ago You when you were at MIT, before, just after MIT and, and some other things. And one of the things I want to talk about is screens. We're going to start talking about screens. We're going to move to women in tech. We're going to talk about what you're doing in, in MRIs and x-rays, essentially. But let's talk a little bit about your background. You started MIT very interested in screen technology. And one of the things when I first met you, you talked about wanting to put a screen on the moon, moon TV. Is that correct? That's right. I designed a system to project video on the moon for all of humanity to see. And I did this sort of as therapy as I was doing my PhD in device physics. Of course. Because that's what you do. I mean, design a screen. Did you say you're doing it as therapy? Yeah, that's why I got into art. It's very funny. Um, two people that taught me holography are in the audience, um, but Sally taught They're me holography. They're actually holograms. And Craig, um, right now. in 1983, I made my first hologram with mm-hmm. Sally. And it was like, the closest thing to a religious experience I ever had. And mm-hmm. it combined for me my interest in art and math and tech and making things. So why did you want to put way. a screen on the moon? Because I would think that would immediately become an advertising vehicle and scare the shit out of humanity, correct? Or what? I did it because I was traveling. I was living in all these different countries. I, in rapid fire, I moved from Australia to Japan to Germany, back to the East Coast, West Coast before the internet and Facebook and I I would just look up to the moon at night and realize that the people that I missed were looking up at the same moon and I wanted to communicate with them and so I started thinking, huh, could you use a laser? No, it wasn't powerful enough and I just got on to, could you figure out how to project video on the moon and I figured out how to do it uh, actually with with Megan and Natalie using a a solar energy uh, facility in the Mojave Desert, redirecting sunlight incident on the Earth to the moon gives you enough light so that all of you... So did you need an actual screen on the moon? Or was it just a reflection? Well, there's these solar energy facilities that are... They call heliostatic mirrors. There's these mirrors that track the sun and focus the light on a vat of water and boil the water, make steam to drive a turbine to make electricity. But instead, with a million dollars of optics above the tower, you can focus that light a little bit higher and make a little projector. And you don't actually need a lens because you get to use this optical effect of 
the distance from the Earth to the moon we can call large, mm -hmm. and as a result, you get something called a Fourier transform. And so you, you make a Fourier transform of what you want in the projector, and you get the image of that, the inversion of it on the moon. And so it was just a clever way to make a really, really big screen. Right. All right. So well, I'm just wondering what the regulatory issues were around that, you know, just trying to turn the moon into a messaging platform. Yeah. So I had a bunch of uh, musicians, rock stars writing music for it and MTV was sponsoring it and Coke and Pepsi were vying for who would be the sponsor. But I got I got really sick during this time mm -hmm. and uh, I was suffering during the time with an undiagnosed brain tumor. Okay. They found it, I got better, but then I really needed health insurance, and so I gave it up, finished my PhD, and got, with two other students, $4 million to start my first company, and really had to give up art because I'm an American, it's pre-Obamacare, and... Well, now we're post-Obamacare, apparently. <laughs> right, um, so I needed, I needed to give it up, but I would love to revisit my friend Bill Gross, has this huge solar facility in Southern California. We've talked about doing it there. We and, don't know if there's right. We're going to get off of this because I want to talk about screens in general and right. where they're going because that's what you specialized in. But what would, what would be your first message on the moon? What would it be like? Sup or what? Well, we talked Laugh about... Laugh out loud. LOL. We talked about the Earth seeing itself and running away. Okay. first image. <laughs> Can you imagine the political messaging that could go up on the moon? Yeah. Oh, man. Fake news! <laughs> Exclamation point. Sad. Um, okay. Um, let's talk a little bit about screens. You have been dedicated to screen technology and where it's going. Can you talk a little bit about sort of what has what have screens become for humanity? Because when you walk around South by Southwest or anywhere in San Francisco, everybody is staring at these tiny screens. Um, I have a new policy where I go up behind people right now, and while they're staring at their screens walking down the street, I go, hey, like that, and try to stop them from doing so. But you have been dedicated to screen technology for a long time. Talk about where it's gone, because you've always tried to make screens smaller. You've always given me tiny little screens and stuff like that. So talk a little bit about well, Except the, for the moon. Except for the moon. <laughs> Where are screens now, and what have they become well, in your mind? Screens. I fell in love with holography, which is that you don't have to wear anything or carry anything. It is augmented reality, if you will. It's the current <laughs> term. And so the screens were actually, I had to sell out and go flat to get health insurance. So I started a screen company uh, called Microdisplay, really tiny screens, but you could magnify them and put them into VR headsets, which we did, and wristwatch video, which we did way before the Apple Watch, and, and uh, early rear projection TVs, and a lot of, we, we were working on that, honestly, because I needed health insurance, and I was technical, and I had a PhD in device physics, so that's the stuff that I, I worked on. I think it's important because 70% of our minds are allocated to processing visual information. We think visually, mm -hmm. but we don't communicate that way. We communicate by moving our jaws and our tongues and typing. We can't get the images out of our head. But we're really, the, the, it, for those that have full vision, mm -hmm. really influenced by, by what we see. And, and I think this, we now call them screens. We don't even call them smartphones or whatever. Mm -hmm. So what, where are screens? Where has the, because most people just stare at a small screen right now. But where, right. where have we come to and where, you worked at Facebook and Google on advanced screens. Yes. So talk about where we are and where it's going, where screens are going. How is it going to be going forward as someone who thinks about 
So right now we're surrounded by these screens that are hanging from the wall and they drive me crazy. They don't make any sense visually or architecturally. I mean, I like seeing the Nat Geo logo and, and so forth, but the screens really need to go into the surfaces of everything. We don't need to carry them on around. We don't need to recharge them. I started a company called Pixel Chi and the principle of as we're going, smartphones were happening, but as we go forward, the predictions were five devices per person. Do you want to charge each one of those every night to mm -hmm. try to get them on a full charge when you're walking around? Smartphones don't even last a day without a recharge now. And so how can we just make it less maintenance to, to have them if we're going to have them, but mm -hmm. ultimately, how do we get rid of them? Rid and of screens altogether. So you communicate with thought. We don't mm -hmm. need the screens. So that's ultimately the, the best screen is no screen, is being able to share the visual information with each other without the encumbrance. But that's interesting to me because you worked at Facebook uh, on Oculus. You were, I think, were the head of engineering for that uh, that department. And here at South by Southwest, we're hearing a lot about virtual reality. I did a bunch of interviews yesterday. Everyone was talking about virtual reality. Um, but virtual reality right now, the experience is actually putting a screen on your face. I mean, right. it's it's... Right. It's, it's like really the wearing a, a computer Motorola brick phones of the 1980s. Right. That's where yeah. we are. And right. So, so when you were at Facebook, what was that experience like? And where do you see that going? Well, they have to get a lot smaller first. There's like four big areas that VR and AR are tackling. One is the device. It's a brick right now on your face. Slimming that down to at least sunglasses or contact lenses. A bunch of the patents of my... I can't officially talk about what I did at Facebook, but if anybody wants to, they can it's read our, our patents on sunglasses, VR, AR, with a toggle switch. A dozen of them just got published. Just look up my name and patent, and you can find them. So clearly there's a direction of getting that out as, as a next So a product. smaller device, a smaller thing that yeah, doesn't show. Yeah, literally the size of a pair of glasses. Okay. So that'll help, but... Alt and, and that's important for mass adaptation of VR is getting that bulkiness down and being able to toggle between virtual reality and augmented reality. <laughs> but ultimately, uh, I don't think you want to wear anything. I could be wrong on that. I think it right. will be a, a step function. You don't want to have to carry stuff around. So just what does that mean when, you're not, when you don't wear something? So right now what you have are these giant things that have things off the back you can't move very far. Yeah. The experience is, you look like an idiot doing it. Um, it's not terrifically fun because it's not that interactive. So what would, it, what would it mean without anything? How would that happen from a technological point of view? Like, are we walking down the street and right now there's a hologram in front of me and I don't know if it's Kara or hologram Kara or I'm, I walk up to something and it's actually a digital kiosk that I'm interacting with. I mean, what does that actually look like? You know, in the first Star Wars, R2-D2 projected out Princess Leia. And right. That was pretty exciting for all of us holographers. Um, actually, it wasn't even holography then. I just remembered it. I remembered it wrong. That was 1977. Like, there's a dream of it being, like, why isn't this table just have the Pokemon on it? You know, like, why just are we looking at this virtualization of it that's mm -hmm. not really real? And I think it's, I think it's actually because most innovations stopped in consumer electronics about a decade ago. It never really recovered from the economic crisis 
Apple executed very well. Uh, most of we see it even now that everybody paid, played fast follower on smartphones. They caught up. Everyone has smartphones. It's saturated, <laughs> and we see the consumer electronics giants at half or two thirds, one third of their valuation 18 months ago. Because is that purely like financial? The the lack of innovation over the past decade since 2008 is that purely financial, or are there other factors going into well, that? Well, it's expensive to develop hardware. It's expensive to make mask sets. I'm one of the few. I think I'm the only small entity that's gotten access to the multi-billion dollar fabs, screen fabs in Asia in the last 20 years. Apple gets access. They make great products. I'm not, but the, like there's not, like it's basically everybody's become fast follower to Apple and the innovation has to come from more place than one. And I, I think what they do is terrific, but they've increased the power consumption by an order of magnitude and I say that I know because they have them but to, to praise them but you know battery. it's time for other people to get back in the fabs are empty people are hungry I think it's a great time for innovation so talk about what physics. talk about what that innovation would look like we are married to these phones and these particular kind of screens and experiences and in VR we're married to uh, Facebook has oculus there's magic leap they Samsung has the their their offering. Google, Sony, Google has theirs. Um, Microsoft. Right? It all is going in the opposite direction of what you're talking about. How do you get to talk about what a VR experience in a perfect place would look like? You'd sit here and there would be VR in front of you without anything, without any. Well, I think it's the thing I'm doing now, which is open water. You, tr right. you transcend language and you communicate with thought, and I think that, and, and we think so visually, auditorially, we think. We developed language to communicate with each other. But right. it seems so talk about that idea of communicating through thought. How, do you, how does that happen? Explain what, open, what, you, what you're doing with open water. So open water is using LCDs to, it, it's, it seems like a two-fold approach. Uh, make a wearable MRI system and work on telepathy. But it's the same technology. So if I throw you in an MRI machine right now, yeah. you as well, I can tell you what words you're about to say. I can tell you what images are in your head. I can tell you what music you're thinking of. I can tell if you're listening to me or not. Right. You really get the implications of what I'm saying because this notion of privacy that we have changes when we can... See people's thoughts. Yes. Right now, you're saying that's you can do that. And that's possible with MRI now. You can so see when I went and got an MRI on my knee last year, Whoever was reading that MRI could theoretically, if they had been reading my brainwaves, seen what I was, put together patterns it's, to see what I was thinking. It's early days, but here's an example of an experiment five years ago that's been okay. replicated and pushed forward by many different research groups in academia. Uh, in Berkeley, a couple, three students were put into MRI machines for hundreds of hours mm -hmm. and shown YouTube videos. And scans of their brains were made reacting to those YouTube videos. MRI, fMRI studies oxygenated blood flow, just looking millimeter by millimeter where oxygen was used and where oxygen wasn't used. Then a new image sequence was shown, and the computer decoding the MRI scan data alone guessed what it thought the person was thinking. Seeing. And then if you add to that, when you see an object versus imagine an object, the same areas light up in fMRI. So this has been repeated with words, with music, with emotion, with all kinds of things, so a just with oxygenated blood flow. Everybody thinks you need to understand 
as Paul Allen calls it, the five Nobel Prizes to understand how a neuron works. Mm -hmm. But today, by just looking cubic millimeter resolution of oxygenated blood flow, we can see... So you're essentially saying that eventually these screens will be able to read your mind. I'm putting the screens on the inside of a ski hat to look into your All right, hat. so explain. You're going to put... You have a hat that you put on... A ski hat. A ski lined, hat. Or you can put it in a t-shirt, a bandage, a bra to see if you've got breast cancer. Any kind okay. of thing. But in the case of, in the case of uh, telepathy or, or even working on neurodegenerative disease, mental disease, all different types of conditions, we can look at first oxygen flow easily because um, it, it's using LCDs illuminated by invisible light. Mm -hmm. infrared light, the type of light you can see in night vision goggles, but our eyes aren't sensitive to it. Our bodies are translucent to that light, and so the light can get into your head. Mm -hmm. um, the breakthrough I've had is, is people thought, I'm going to tell you, people, your light, your scatter light. Think, people think scattering is random. Mm -hmm. Scattering is not random. It's deterministic and reversible mm -hmm. if you can make a hologram of it. Right. And so my observation was the pixel size that we're being able to create through the VR and AR push with the manufacturers in Asia, because everybody wants higher quality VR with more pixels. So the manufacturing process improvements are enabling much smaller pixels. With those small pixels, we can make pixels that are approximately the wavelength of light mm -hmm. in the infrared. And that's really key, because that's the breakthrough for making a hologram. And if you make a hologram of the scatterer. Holography has this property, the scattering of your body, where you can invert the hologram with something called phase conjugation or time All right, reversal don't go there. or whatever. Don't go there. <laughs> and basically, you invert it so that the body becomes transparent. So explain so, the, the... So we're making it totally transparent. So right. then you can see inside ahead, of then. our body, whether you've got cancer, whether you've got a clogged artery, so, whether you've got bleeding. So essentially you could state. wear clothes that could tell you where your cancer is at any one point or where your brain tumor is right. or whatever. Or without using magnets. Or you can read it and write it. So you can change neuron state. We know infrared is keeping neurons alive. <laughs> we know that IR light activates the neurons without using optogenetics, which is this breakthrough of um, putting a, a chemical that binds to a neuron so that it changes color and then you can put a voltage down it. But we can, with IR light, put voltage down a neuron so we can change memories. We can. The implications are quite profound, mm -hmm. which is why... Well, P I had a great job at Facebook, but Peter Gabriel, the rock star, the guy I worked with on Moon TV, for example, he called me every week for six months trying to convince me to quit Facebook because he thought the ethical and legal implications of this were so profound, somebody needed to talk about them. Mm -hmm. When you have the national academies of every developed country, almost every developed country in the world saying, of the top five things you can do as a technologist, reverse engineering the brain is in the top five, nobody's talking about what happens when we do it. So what, I mean, are the, what are the ethical implications of that? If we live in a world where we're all wearing these wearables, these shirts, these ski hats, where our neural activity is apparent to the people around us, available to the other people around us, whether it's in a medical environment. I know one of the anecdotes you've used a lot is this idea of a film director 
looking at something and instead of having to verbally communicate what she or he wants to see, just brain waves, right? Like when that, when all of that information is available to us, what are the ethical implications of that? How do you keep it private? Well, I mean, let's start with, we got this ski hat. Can the police make you wear it? Can the military make you wear it? Who owns your thoughts? Can you make, can, once you share them, can you delete them? What are the filtering? Have you ever thought about something you didn't want to say out loud? Kara does all the time. All the time. Actually, Kara just says it. And so these filters, like, we have to make it so it only works when you want to think into it and you turn on the parses whether you want to communicate about sex but you can't, or violence. You, you or, can't control that, correct? Presumably you can't. So you put on a Facebook hat. Say Facebook gives you a hat. Facebook's and, not doing that. No, I know that. But I'm just saying, it, uh, from some level, someone gives you a hat and can... Control yeah. your thoughts, or they can just know them and broadcast. Do you them. imagine wearing a Facebook well, hat? You just no. wake up every day and you go, "Happy birthday, happy birthday, happy birthday." Happy <laughs> well, that's birthday. why we're talking about it. We need a bill of rights for new technology. That's uh-huh. an international kind of bill of rights of what is the right of an individual. Because as our notion of what privacy, what's appropriate for privacy, mm-hmm. is changing right now ethically every year. Yeah. But when you think about can you have an, not have privacy and still have an individual? I mean, the name Open Water, Peter Gabriel name, the company comes from those people that choose to let it all happen, that their minds just swirl around with other people's minds and the computers. And some people will choose to do that. They can choose to come out of that. They can choose to have filters on them. But we need to talk about this not just in, you know, Austin and Silicon Valley, but the implications are profound so give me a negative implication and a positive implication give me give me an example in real world okay positive first um okay negative is you know mind control um, right donald trump wearing one of these things well i think it would help us to see donald trump's thought processes also this whole unconscious bias all of a sudden we have to look at it like Mm -hmm. we can fix xenophobia maybe if we face our xenophobia all these kinds of social change is slow, but this could give a, a spike on social change if we choose. So, if we can see into people's minds, we presumably understand them better. That's what you're saying. Well, yes. The, okay. How the brain it's, is this as we understand it, and there are neurons in the rest of our body as well. But as we understand it, most of it's from our brain, and it's what makes us human. It's who we are, and understanding it more is valuable. But in terms of a positive implication. Everywhere you look in this room, it took years of somebody's life to perfect that technology, multiple people's lives to perfect technology. And everybody thinks like AI is coming for our jobs. But in fact, the personal computing revolution was based on the inversion of that, IA, intelligence augmentation, like Doug Engelberg, who was a proponent for this when AI was first coined in the 50s, invented the mouse, sort of pioneered personal computing we can instead augment our own intelligence and leverage the robots and the 3D printers and the AI. Like, if you have a thought of how to make a better object, you can just think it and then it appears. You melt it down and make a new one. You can work on the really big problems this way of the environment, of space travel. Or so you're healthcare. talking about humans augmenting their intelligence as opposed to computers becoming smarter and replacing and killing us, correct? Our brains are way, way more complex than any computer we know how to make. And we don't understand how they work yet. They're way more creative. The input's pretty good. 
but the output is constrained by our tongues and jaws moving and our us typing. Mm-hmm. If we could communicate at the speed of thought, we can augment our intel, our creativity and that intelligence with the sort of low-level stuff that the AI and robots and 3D printers and fab labs. So we could be as do. smart as a computer. Smarter. Smarter than a computer. We are smarter than a computer. But it can't ever get out. Most people are not smarter than a computer, or don't seem to be. Far more creative, and it, it, we think it's how the firing works, and it's probably the mistakes in firing give us these things called ideas, maybe. Not for you, of course. <laughs> <laughs> so what are the neg- negative implications? We talked about the positives. Um, privacy, and not talking about the implications of this. I think, you know, if... If somebody makes you wear this hat, right? So you're in the military, they put a hat on your head, for example. And they want to know everything you're thinking. They ask you questions and you can't filter. And so the filtering has to be fundamental to the the use of the technology as well as the compliance, the wish that the person wants to share their thoughts and what areas they want to share. And so that's, that's what we're working on is a way to do that that's baked in at the bottom level into the technology. The filters themselves. Filters with filters that, you know, do you want the sex filter on or off? Do you want the violence filter on and off? And the other, you know, do you want to talk about your kids? Do you want, like, the other things that you're thinking about? Like, what am I going to eat for dinner? But wouldn't wouldn't the impetus be to have as much information from someone's mind as possible so they could know who's a terrorist, who is going to well, rob something well, who is going to you know you think about that movie um, with Tom I try not to watch Tom Cruise movies as much as possible but um, when they when they anticipated before someone did oh, something thought but, crime right yeah a thought crime so the thing is I, what we're starting at Open Water is as part of it's a six month old company is, is ethical discussions around this to figure out how to navigate it and how to ma- bring this technology responsibly in the world because the truth is, while our first devices are healthcare devices mm-hmm. to see if you have a tumor, right. it's the same technology that can enable us to communicate with thoughts. So we're trying to bake it in in the very beginning. A lot of people think this is decades out. I think it's three to eight years out. Wow. And so that's why I'm trying to start with others others in the field, the discussion of what's ethically correct to do globally, not just in the U.S. and Europe or the high-tech right. places. But you could imagine fascist governments not wanting, wanting to have full ability to read people's thoughts at all times. I read, sure, 1984. I mean, I mean they already been, do. And so the question is, what do you do? Do you, have, do you give your Facebook password at the border right. crossing or... How do we responsibly talk about this and then deal with it legally? So what stage would you say the technology is at right now at Open Water? What stage of the company would you say you're at? Well, we started six months ago. We're giving ourselves the first year to explore the bounding box of the physics, which is how deep we can go, what resolution. We just got about 10 centimeters of depth with 100 micron resolution in the lab, which is pretty small if we get get to 10 microns just in order of magnitude better we're we're writing neurons not groups of neurons neurons which is very exciting when you think of the billion people 
that are living with debilitating brain disease uh, between neurodegenerative and mental disease that have little or no, there's little or no opportunity. There's two billion people globally with mental disease, but one billion people can't work. It's by far the biggest healthcare expenditure. So this, the state is, we're sort of exploring that and then we're gonna decide based on the result of that, what our first products are. And, and start building the first products. But we're, we don't want to just rush into a product because it's hardware. And there's hardware and software. There's a lot of AI and so forth in this. But there's this thing about hardware that's different than software that's sort of obvious, but it changes how you develop. And the thing is that you can't change it once you ship it. And right. I know it sounds really stupid, but the way you develop it is you just try to figure out, can you skip three generations by mm -hmm. spending a little bit more time in the lab first? Yeah. So that's what we're doing right now. Sounds like the kind of thing you don't want to put out in beta. Yeah, I could see that. Well, we will Learning put it out by beta shipping, right? with other research groups and, yeah. and share data with them. And all right. we want to like cross-check it all. We're going to get to audience Q&A in a second. But first, I want to talk a little bit about women in tech. Mm -hmm. um, there's been this thing happening in Silicon Valley around a company called Uber, which doesn't operate here in Austin. Um, can we talk a little bit about how you're one of the, there's not very many prominent women techies. There's a lot of women in tech. Um, can you talk about how you feel this, you know, when Uber comes up, it seems to come up every couple of years, the same issues. How do you operate as a woman in tech and how do you feel about what's happening when it occurs over and over and over again? Frustrated. Uh, I feel frustrated when it occurs over and over. So this isn't Fowler Node in the... The great coverage you did on Ellen Powell, fantastic. Uh, I think that lays out the problem, but what I do is I just go back and read about another disadvantaged great scientist, usually a white guy from centuries ago, who still transformed the world and dealt with a lot more crap than is out there now. And I, I guess the solution, I think, now lies in HR hasn't been reinvented in decades. Mm -hmm. And when s multiple surveys are showing a third of senior women have signed non-disparagement agreements, it means we can't talk about what the problem is, which, you know, whatever, 10-step, 12-step programs say the first step is acknowledging. Well, it seems that we need to understand what led to the signing of non-disparagement. Non-disparagement agreements are usually signed by people leaving companies and they get extra money to not talk about what happened. Mm -hmm. Right. And so that that's the thing I think that needs to be unlocked so that we can talk about it. The use of the term unconscious bias, as bizarre as it is, made it so HR could talk about gender discrimination or racist or any kind of discrimination in a way that it's still legal to have unconscious bias. So we could talk about it. Right. So that's good. So, now so you see the term as a positive thing, the fact that the term is being used, or no, because term, it's... But, like, open water can let us throw our unconscious bias right out there on the table, right. the stuff we're doing. See, I think it's completely conscious. <laughs> I don't think it's unconscious. I think it's just laziness on people's part uh, that they use that as an excuse. The key thing for me is it enables, it enables HR, at least, to talk about the issues. Mm -hmm. Because we know that, like... Women aren't getting to the top of, of really any field in tech. They're not getting to the top. No. Because of these, whatever, I guess the current term is microaggressions and unconscious bias, death by a thousand paper cut kind mm -hmm. of scenario, and, and sometimes much worse. Mm -hmm. And so how do you navigate that? I think um, 
I have different techniques I use. I think they're different. I mean, you, all you both also are very senior in a. So, in what a techniques field. do you use? What has to happen in tech? I mean, you obviously came up again. You went to MIT. There right. used to be many more women going to MIT than there are today. It's about half as much. How do you change that? Or, or, not just women, but people of color, all kinds of difference? Or is it just a path that we're going to talk about diversity and do absolutely nothing about it? I think the women are still there. It's just computer science majors. I think MIT is still admitting uh, the women. And that started in the 80s with me. Like In the 70s, women weren't allowed to, to like go to these schools. It just, it just opened up Harvard and like for, for women en masse when uh, Millie Dresselhaus, we were talking about backstage, Made, showed that it was harder for women to get into MIT than men, and that they should even the playing field, so it was the same difficulty. So that happened, and we thought it was all great. So how do you get through? Um, I actually go into areas that other people aren't that interested in, <laughs> where I had space when I was younger, because I didn't know how to deal with his sharp elbows. And so I had a lot of space in the holography lab and in the stuff that I did. Mm -hmm. But then I had to grow the sharp elbows as, as, as somebody with more life experience to stand up, call credit. Um, and just the thing I do is I work all the time. And I really do stuff I love to do. And I'm very interested in it. And, and that that wins you know you just what do they say be so good they can't ignore you yeah, you're not you letting have, anyone dissuade you, you i mean you're you're so passionate about what you're doing you're saying that you're not letting anyone dissuade you you're looking to p other people for inspiration who have fought through similar things yeah i mean i read a biography of fourier this year because i was mad about something astonishing he's a white guy but he was an orphan abandoned uh, destitute an orphanage slash military academy picked him up and he um, got on the wrong side of the law, law during the storming of the Bastille, was nearly guillotined and then he sort of fell in line and became a soldier in Napoleon's army and you know, just, he really loved math and science. He, he's a, a prolific mathematician and scientist. He, he first discovered the greenhouse effect, for example, mm -hmm. in the early 1800s. But you look at his life, I mean, he was he went through so much in the army and he finally, I think when he was 50, got to work on science and, and math as a full-time job and got out of the soldiering. And you look at that and you just think, okay, he did it. Or, you know, I just, Isaac Newton or Galileo or, or, or we were talking about Michael Faraday, the, the thing that everybody's using, naming all their companies Faraday. <laughs> Astonishing guy. He learned how to read when he was an indentured servant at a bookbinder. Never was formally educated, and came up with the most profound uh, physical and mathematical discovery of the 1900s. And couldn't do math. He did it visually. He couldn't do algebra. Uh, although I'm not sure. Let's just put up with this shit. Is really the yeah, best. I was just going to say. Always saying it's, it's not, not so bad. It's not yeah. so bad. It's, it's just not good it's either. It's a way to give you solace. I mean. I move jobs quite frequently. Yeah, you do. <laughs> I don't put up with a shit. Yeah, yeah. If I realize that I can do better in a different situation, I do. Right. I don't advocate that. It's really good to have also hung out around a lot in different companies. But for innovation, I also believe startups are a better place to do innovations that require device physics 
than web services juggernauts because the people running the web services juggernauts do not understand physics or devices. And so startups are, it's an incredibly great time to do a startup. The numbers are, the number of startups have halved in the last 18 months and there's more money than ever, double the money. And so there's tons of money to do startups and it's a place where you can make your own rules. So that's one thing, one way to do it. I wouldn't call Uber a startup, it's a pretty mature company. But social change is slow. It's really slow. It's mm -hmm. frustratingly slow. I was just going to say, a couple years ago, you did an interview for Recode about, we did a series on women in tech. One of our fabulous reporters slash interns, Rachel, did this, and she interviewed you. And at the time, um, you said that you thought the tech industry could be incredibly hostile to women. And that was two years ago. It was 2015. So I'm wondering if, even in this short time, you've seen any progress any change? I mean, more companies are doing diversity reports now, but there's some question as to how helpful that really is. So in terms of hostile, I, I grew up on a farm, so I meant it as sort of soil, and some plants grow tall and others don't. And we don't see women and minorities growing tall. And so it, it's systemic to the environment and the soil, if you will, in that analogy. And we can fix that if we choose to. And... I think that there's, you know, the, the discussion goes on, who's doing this well and why, you know, it's still the fact that white male dropouts from Harvard or Stanford are making these multi-billion dollar companies. And so until we change that, how, who's going to, who is that going to be? Everybody thought it was going to be Theranos, but that, you know, has... And so that, that's the backdrop, is where are the examples of the, the startup founders? And I, they're not really, they're not like the hard tech, like, I'm sorry, but like when you drop out of freshman year, you're probably not going to do device physics the best, right. is it? But nonetheless, I mean, it's, it's amazing what Zuck did and what Bill Gates did and so forth, and Larry and Sergey. Well, I'd like to put a hat on everybody so I can actually see their thoughts and make my job a lot easier. But we're going to get to questions from the audience. I don't know how we're doing that. We There's some microphones. So Mary Chad Lou. here has a microphone. If anyone would like to ask Mary Lou a question. Hi, Mary Lou. Um, my name is John. I'm with Discovery. Uh, you said that everybody who's doing VR is struggling with four things right now, four obstacles. You said the first one is the size of the thing that's on your face. What are the other three? Question. Oh, the content. So, I'm going to repeat that question. Oh, sorry. The question is, Mary Lou talked about the issues around the introduction of VR. One was the size of the device on the face, which is large. Um, what are the other three constraints? So, uh, one is the content. What's going to be the content that, you know, passes the toothbrush test, meaning you need to use it every day. The interaction as we get rid of our smartphone and the interface or the keyboard and the mouse, how are we going to interact? I did a lot of gesture stuff in the 80s at the Media Lab with hyper instruments. They weren't satisfying to play instruments. And so we'll, what is the interaction going to be? And then um, the other is the sensing of the environment. So there's huge progress being made in these four areas that are seen as key for the advance of VR and AR and mixed reality and to me, it's all the same thing, but yes, there are these sub small differences between them. But there's, there's a big push on lots of that front. A lot of it is kept stealth. 
by the companies, by the big companies and the small companies. You said it's in stealth? Stealth. You can see it in the patents that are being issued. If you, I guess, as the press, get demos. But there's an enormous amount of progress that's been made in the last couple of years with this huge amount of investment that's gone into this area. Okay. Good Great. question. Thank question. you. Other questions? Over here. Hey, guys. Hi, Mary Lou. You're a, the leading expert on screens. Can you talk about screen time for kids? How much is too much? Screen time, the question is about screen time for kids. How much is too much? I think, it, well, I'm, I'm not an expert on kids. I uh, did found something making laptops for kids. I think it depends what the content is. And for example, in the $100 laptop, we loaded it up with lots of puzzles and things that you could do where you learn how to program, but you didn't really know that you were learning how to program and, and things like that. And that content seems good. Um, I don't have kids. Do you have an opinion? I do have kids. Um, if they're reading the New York Times, I'm good with it. Um, if they're doing interesting things, uh, yeah, I'm fine. I'm, I'm just fine with them using it. It's just like watching the television as far as I'm concerned. Um, but eventually, it gets so obsessive. Um, and I have a real thing about... Um, it's addictive, and I don't think we've explored the addiction part enough. We talk about it in a large sense, um, but there's a great podcast we did with Tristan Harris about the addictive qualities of what these companies are doing, and um, uh, tech company heads always talk, are very libertarian. That's their favorite little thing to push out, that everybody does what they want, Kara. Um, I am fine with that if they didn't have a thousand engineers trying to get me to click on a red fucking button. That's what they have. They, it's, not, it's not libertarian. They, they, they're, like, uh, they're like Las Vegas uh, casinos, and they're trying to get me to do things. And so I'm pretty certain that they spent a lot of money trying to keep your attention. And when the, since they're doing that, I'd rather have my kids use, you know, if they read or do puzzles or do anything. Um, but if they're spending all their hours playing an idiotic game, it's... I yeah. limit it. It seems to me like one of the bigger questions is going to be, and this is something we're not going to know until maybe there's some long-term studies done, but how much multitasking. As you mentioned, just looking at a screen maybe is not that different from having watched television when we were growing up as kids, but the idea of having multiple screens around us and then having the tasks you're doing on a single screen switching so easily, which is very different from sort of a linear television experience, I think that's going to be really interesting to see how generations that are growing up now, how their brains are impacted by that kind of multitasking. Absolutely. And Mary Lou, maybe you could address when you're in an immersive environment, a VR environment, how that changes. I imagine you don't want to leave it when you're in these VR environments. It depends how good the content is and the, the experience. And so a lot of the VR experiences are relatively short mm -hmm. uh, because we're navigating how to make the experience really but good. But eventually they will be better than reality, correct? That's the hope of the people working on it. And you do have almost every brain cell in consumer electronics working on this right now. Right. Um, I'm, I don't think so, but I've been working on VR and AR and that kind of stuff for 30 years, and I come to a different conclusion. Um, I think you want something that's just non-invasive that can... It, 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 a lot of it depends on those four areas and the progress. Right. There's possible. There's ways to realize that vision. It will take some time. Do you imagine it ever getting to a holodeck kind of thing? Yeah. I mean, I think there's a better way to do that with without wearing anything. 
without wearing you just enter a holodeck environment and you can sure. be in the 20s or you can be in sure. medieval France or you could be wherever yeah. this set yeah. is not real right this, now right yeah right. This this is a, yeah that's something that we've been working on for a long time and, and that continues and you can do that with like the holodeck where the screens are on sometimes you got to see in Star Trek the next generation the room blank and it was just made of these screens mm-hmm. and so you could do that that way or you could do it in the form of a wearable I, I think it's going to be better if it's if it's if it's actually a room like that but you know honestly it's in your mind anyway is where I go to we can just implant the thoughts yeah we can implant it there implant it that's what it would be as we deal with the ethics yeah as we deal with the ethics all right question right here and the viruses Hello, tell us your name. Oh, I'm Pauline Ploquin. I uh, own a digital agency called Struck, and of course I have a question about women in tech. Um, you use the analogy of the farm and the soil for women in tech and how we don't see women growing tall, and you said um, we can easily fix the soil and the ecosystem, and I'm curious, okay, like what would you recommend? How would you fix the soil and the ecosystem for women in tech? Fix AHR, get rid of performance reviews. The secret to hiring diversity is just hire them. (laughs) Make sure credit is more fairly apportioned than it is now because um, we still want to think it's like the tall guy in the room with good teeth that did the project for some reason. And stop rewarding bullying. But we put bullies into office. We put them as heads of companies. We seem to like bullies being in charge. We have to flip that psychologically to to fix this. Or become a bully, I guess. That works for me. we so, uh, no, but in terms questions? of that, one of the one of the phrases we'll get to this question that at, that Uber used, Ariana Huffington used, was "brilliant jerks." Uh, that you have to stop tolerating brilliant jerks. Seems Is like an ever- oxymoron to me because what? if they're jerks, they're not super brilliant. But that's well, just my opinion. Well, that was there's a, I know a lot of brilliant jerks. Is that going to ever happen in tech? Um, it happens if you want. You vote with your feet, right? Uh, brilliant jerks. Um, I don't think that I, the whole, um, you know, uh, what is it called? Uh, you know, expert on everything, the know-it-all. Know the, there's no such thing as a know-it-all. It's, and so I just, I don't work with know-it-alls because it, it's, I guess, the brilliant jerk. And well, the I high think while the motivation the high... is promotion and the way the, the way the whole company works with the promotion system and being in charge and what you reward is what you get. And instead, can you look at rewarding the output of the work, which sometimes takes multiple years to see? That's what startups actually do pretty well. So the beginning structure of startups, the beginning structure of startups really do reward that. Now there's other things, because it can be in the startup, it's before you get HR. So serial entrepreneurs starting a second, third, fourth company can probably do that pretty well. But then it gets big, and then you have to figure out what you want to reward at a management level. And right now, if everybody's focus is not on transforming people or make, with this transformative product, but in getting promoted, you get what you you what set you the rules to be reward what you want, which is the very thing that we're trying to move the needle on. Right here. Hi. Can you hear me? Hi. Yeah. 
My speak name up. is Rachel. I'm from Portland, and I'm a VR360 video editor. And my question for all of you is, what is your favorite VR, AR, or MR experience that you've tried so far? Oh, that's a good what one. What is the question? What's your favorite VR or AR or MR experience that you've tried oh. so far? Mary Lou? Mary Lou, like what's your favorite VR, MR, AR experience? My favorite? Uh, you know, when you said, <laughs> I actually went back to the late 90s in Henry Fuchs' lab at University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, where he had this big system. It was much more expensive, but it, it rivals anything you'd see today. And... He was walking me around the lab and tried to push me into this pit of uh, wires and snakes and stuff, and it, it scared me. So I think the interesting thing is, it, while I had been doing VR up to that time with lower resolution headsets, that pushed me over you know, the uncanny valley, so I thought it was real for the first time. The problem for me was, is that was 18, 19 years ago, and it hasn't move forward and I still remember that when you ask that question and that that's my concern. What was uh, yours, Care? I don't I don't use a lot of VR, but I actually just recently saw one I don't like the scary ones and I don't like the ones where you touch the whale. I don't want to touch a whale. <laughs> um, but I just saw one that John Favreau, who worked on Jungle Book, um, I just did a podcast with him, and he's got one called Gnomes and Goblin or I don't know. There are a lot of gnomes. Um, and I, I didn't really like visiting the gnomes very much, but I could see it being a, that kind of thing where you explore environments and travel. Um, I would like to visit ancient Rome. I would like to visit... You got a sense that it didn't have to be shocking or porny or, um, or violent, like, or scary. A lot of the scary ones work really well in VR, I guess. But I would like to visit... Play, I, you, I got a sense that I could visit an environment. I just didn't want to hang out with gnomes, that's all. Yeah. So, I think, uh, unfortunately, I don't remember the name of this short that I saw at the San Francisco Film Festival last spring, but it was a little animated short um, that had kind of a, a reveal where you looked up and you realized the environment was actually this monster-like structure, and it was very cool. And so I think for entertainment purposes, I'm really intrigued by the idea of using that type of immersive media to have surprise endings or choose your own adventure. Like, imagine if we were all watching The Matrix and half of us took the blue pill and half of us took the red pill and then we had these different VR experiences based on that. So I love the idea of that, but also I won't get too deep into this because I could nerd out on this forever, I'm sure, but um, at Stanford's lab, Virtual Reality Lab, maybe you've been there, uh, they're doing a lot of studies around behavioral change and how VR is impacting that. So they might, for example, have someone do a Superman application where you're flying in VR and then they gauge how you feel after that and if you feel empowered or if you feel different based on having that experience. Or if you're a cow in VR, does it, do, does it end up resulting in you eating less meat because you've empathized with being a cow. And so I think the behavioral applications could also be really interesting in the future beyond just entertainment. Absolutely. Okay, one, one more question and then we'll get to the end. Go ahead. Hi, uh, my name's Nina. I'm from here in Austin. Um, so actually, Lauren, your no, not working. last reply. I'm having a little question. bit of a hard time oh. hearing you, maybe. Yeah. Can you hear me now? A little bit. Okay, Kara, so I think you need to do like a, this. You need to put the mic really put close. The, really okay. close. All right. Um, so I was actually.
actually going to ask about um, what are some ways you imagine this technology could be applied to help people put themselves in other people's shoes and increase empathy? Um, and you talked about that a little bit. You were going to ask about VR for increasing empathy? Yeah. Increasing empathy. Specific applications or whether it's possible or... Oh, you know, just if you think it's possible, like ways that you've imagined it could happen. um, So let me re-ask that, I think, correctly. Um, Mary Lou, do you imagine these things that go on your head and other things can actually change people to be better people or even worse people? You know, there was a um, Jean-Claude Van Damme movie, Universal Soldier, where they train people to be more violent, or they, tr- they use that mind control to do that. Do you imagine some of these tech VR and other techno- and mind technologies can change people to be better people? Yeah, I mean, they, most of the last century, they gave soldiers drugs to go fight in war. I was reading something that France didn't do that well because they gave them red wine instead of... <laughs> They wanted to go to sleep. Oh, I did not fight. Um, we will not but, fight today. We will drink. <laughs> but um, em- empathy and, and 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 training people to do different things—that's what we call education. Can we make education more effective? Can we be responsible in what what we choose to teach people? I, what came to mind when she asked that question was uh, a VR system that was used in, for LA cops and. They'd be driving around, and they thought they were all in cruisers, but some of the cops were in unmarked vehicles. And then one of the cops that didn't know he was in an unmarked vehicle got pulled over by a real cruiser, and then he realized he was in an unmarked vehicle. And then he looked in the rearview mirror and realized he was African-American. Wow. And it really transformed. He started to get scared of, of the treatment. and so. There's experiences that you can create that can maybe put people in other people's shoes to realize maybe they can treat people think, differently. Think differently about how they treat people. Yeah, you can all make all those bros that act badly at these companies be women for a day. Enjoy that for a second. Um, although it's lovely being a woman in many areas. <laughs> Um, all right, so we're going to finish up with two embarrassed to answer. We're going to yes. test you, Mary Lou, on your on your knowledge this of is technology. This a little game we play from time to time, where we turn it back to Mary Lou and right. we do a little pop. So, quiz. what better place to bring it in front of a live audience, Mary Lou? We're going to subject you to a round of two embarrassed to answer. We're going to quiz you on three questions. If you get at least two of them right, you get a prize. What is that prize, Lauren? Good. The prize are. Drinks from the Nacho Bar, genius right? Hat. Uh, a genius hat, and also Kara is going to share her Hall of Fame award with you. Yes. I'm surprised you don't have one already. Yeah. You probably have many exactly. awards. They so. give a Hall of Fame award to people who are close to dying, just so you know. <laughs> All right, I'll, I'll do. Congratulations! Uh, I'll thank do you. I'm very one. excited to be dying soon. Anyway, um, uh, earlier this week we had a day without women's strike, so this is a quiz without men. Specifically, there are all questions about women in tech and science ready to play. Lauren, will you ask the first question? The Oscar-nominated film, Hidden Pictures, tells the story of three black female engineers working at NASA. Excuse me, what did I say? Yeah, pictures. Oh, sorry. Oh, God, I just had a Jenna Bush moment. It's like, totally messed that up. Hidden pictures. (laughs) Hidden figures. Excuse me. As in math, Lauren. Figures. I know. Katherine Johnson. Is that the answer? No, okay. but oh, she's right on this. She's going to win this. 
excuse me, Hidden Figures. I do know the movie. One of these real women is named Katherine Johnson. But which of these is not the name of a character in the film? Is it A, Dorothy Vaughn, B, Margaret Hamilton, or C, Mary Jackson? Margaret Hamilton. Correct. Isn't in the movie. She is a real computer scientist. She was a NASA's engineer. And She's going to ace yes. Not in the movie. All right, question two. Lauren? You do this one. Oh, I'll do it. Yeah. The person often recognized as history's first computer programmer, Ada Lovelace, was given a delightful nickname by computing pioneer Charles Babbage. What was the nickname? A, the Enchantress of Number, B, the Counting Countess, or C, the Agent of Algorithms, all appalling in their own way. Which one? I think it was the Enchantress. That is correct. <laughs> wow. Nice job, Mary Lou. All right, let's go for three for three. All right. Uh, Lauren, will you please finish? One of Kara's fellow South by Southwest Hall of Famers is known not only for this person's accomplishments in the tech industry, but also for having a name spelled entirely in lowercase letters. Mary Lou, who has won this Hall of Fame award for paving the future of new media? Is it A, E.E. E. Cummings, lowercase, B, Katie Lang, lowercase, or C, Dana Boyd, also lowercase? Katie Lang? Oh, no. <laughs> Dana Boyd. Dana Boyd. Uh, I believe she won in 2012. Yes, she uh, 2012 or 2013, the Hall of Fame. Yeah, they do. That's true. Yeah. They but do. But no, that was, that but was this a tough one. But the Hall no. of Fame no. doesn't include the <laughs> no. music people? Okay. Anyway, Mary Lou, thank, thank you three, so though. much for enduring this rather loud bar situation. We really appreciate it. Thanks. It was awesome. Uh, it'll sound here. a lot thank better you. when it's uh, broadcast because this actually does pick up sound. And, and Mary Lou, tell everyone when you're going to be speaking this week at South by Southwest. Oh, giving a featured talk. Tuesday, 9.30 in the convention center and what on is it telepathy and medical imaging. Do you know uh, what I'm thinking? No, I think you're... Uh, I can guess. <laughs> Please don't. All right, this has been another great episode of Too Embarrassed to Ask. Mary Lou, thank you so much for joining us. Yes, thank you. Thanks. And if you all enjoyed the episode as much as we did, uh, you can subscribe to our show. Just go to iTunes.com slash Too Embarrassed to Ask. You can find all of our episodes there. And seriously, subscribe. If you do, you'll be the first to listen to new episodes every Friday or catch up on previous episodes where we answer all of the tech questions that our listeners have been too embarrassed to ask. Yes, and if you're not on iTunes, we're everywhere else you need to be. You can go to Google Play Music, TuneIn, Stitcher, SoundCloud. You can also just go to Recode.net, our website, Recode.net slash podcast. You can find all of our podcasts there. And while you're there, check out our other podcasts like Recode Decode, Recode Replay, and Recode Media with Peter Kafka. Yep. The Verge also has some great podcasts. Our flagship podcast is The Verge Cast. And then, of course, Walt Mossberg and Neil I. Patel have control Walt Elite. And don't forget to tweet your questions ahead of time to at Recode with the hashtag too embarrassed or email them to too embarrassed at recode.net yes thank you for listening thank you for coming we're so excited to have you all here and thank you also to digital media which produces our too embarrassed podcast thank you to eric johnson our producer who is in the house megan farnsworth is doing social for us uh and just tune in tune in every week every friday for more of the questions you've been too embarrassed to ask <laughs>